is ready. Yes. That's perfect. Welcome. I am Anders Bolling. This is Mind the Shift, a podcast where we talk about a shifting world and an integrating world. One garment in our societal apparel that is being retailored at a fast pace nowadays is politics. The United States is always in the crosshairs, also for those of us who live outside of it. American politics has definitely transformed. Partisanship and polarization have increased. My guest today is Alan Lichtman. He's been a professor of history at American University in Washington, DC since 1980. He is the author of seven books and hundreds of popular and scientific articles. And he has famously correctly predicted the, the election of no fewer than nine American presidents in a row, including the incumbent. That is every president since Ronald Reagan's second win in 1984. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you very much. By the way, uh, I've been teaching since 1973. I'm even older than you think. And I'm now <laughs> up to 11 books. It's 11 books. Oh, sorry. 11 books. It's all right. I'm glad that you could correct that. I was just reading out of the, you know, the bio. Yeah, the university thing is probably out of date. Okay. <laughs> 11 books. That's impressive. So, uh, and wow, being the Nostradamus of American presidential elections is really no ordinary feat. But let's start at another end. I just learned that you are also a former steeplechase champion. Tell us more about that. <laughs> yeah, that? Uh, you know, uh, it's the over the hill steeplechase champion, age right. group champion, not uh, Olympic champion or anything okay. like that. I was a very mediocre college runner, division three at Brandeis University, but I kind of got better remarkably as I got older. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of an in-between runner, not fast enough to be a sprinter, but not a marathoner. So I ran okay. the lowest race I ran was the uh, 400. The highest was uh, about the 1500. So I thought I'd try my hand at this crazy race designed for horses, but yeah. run by people, the 3000 meter steeplechase, where you got to jump over police barriers and then jump over water. Well, us over the hill runners were pretty bad at it. So my technique was to start out last and let everyone kind of smash into everyone else at the water jump. And then <laughs> when they did that, I, I, I would jump over. I'm looking at okay. my medals right here. Uh, I was oh, North American beautiful. over when the hill this? steeplechase, 1979, I think it was. Okay. A long time ago. I'm an old, I'm an old guy, but I still, still run. run? You still, still run, run okay. almost every Beautiful. day. And you're 70 plus. 73. Years. Yeah, excellent. Fantastic. And this is not all because I also learned that you, at one point, you won 16 uh, quiz shows in a row. Yes. 1981, I was a visiting distinguished scholar at Caltech in Pasadena. So what do you do when you're a distinguished visiting scholar at the most technical and scientific educational institute in the world, you go on a quiz show. And I went on tic-tac-toe with Wink Martindale, which is a tic-tac-toe board. But to get next or no, you got to answer a question in any category. It could be colors, nursery rhymes, movies. And I beat 20 opponents. I won over $100,000 and four cars back oh, in wow. 
1981 when this was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, pretty good, pretty good. But I mean, you can, you're obviously good at his, his history. You can understand that, but that don't win you, doesn't win no. you any, any quiz show. That so what, what, are your, what, are your, what are your favorite subjects apart from, from history? Uh, you know, I love sports. Being a sportsman myself, yeah. I follow a lot of sports. I'm glad to see baseball's back. I'm a, a New Yorker, a longtime Yankee fan. I go back to the days of Mickey Mantle. Not quite Joe DiMaggio, but uh, at least back to the days of Mickey Mantle and, and, and Yogi Berra. I'm, I'm also a, obviously a voracious writer and reader. Okay. Having done 11 books. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, well, I don't know whether your your uh, success at the quiz shows has helped you to predict correctly predict the the presidents of the United States. But let we'll me tell you something. Into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do about please. the quiz sure. show. People don't a little inside secret. Yeah, being good in a quiz show is not knowing things. Every contestant knows a lot. That's not what makes you successful. It's two other things. One is coolness under pressure. At least back in 1981, we were pushed out on the stage in front of these screaming crowds with lights in our eyes, a director telling us to do all kinds of things. Some of the smartest people that I went up against froze. Mm. Second thing is stamina. We, do, we did five shows a day. Oh. The whole week was done in one day, and there were always technical problems, so we would go from early in the morning to late at night. It took a tremendous amount of stamina. And one of the things I've done is I've been an expert witness in 100 civil rights cases, mostly voting rights, all of the big cases in Texas, Florida, North Carolina, California, all Maybe over Maybe that's the a little bit similar to the quiz shows, would you say? Coolness and stamina. Yes, you have to have the cool, and it's a different kind of pressure. You've got a cross-examining attorney wanting to take your head off. I've been cross-examined for eight hours. Wow. Okay, so uh, right off the bat, <laughs> no, I, it wasn't right <laughs> off the bat. I've asked a few questions before now, but now let's get into this uh, presidential thing. Um, well, just simply... Uh, who will prevail on November 3rd? Will Trump bag a second term? I predicted him to win the first term. And right here over my shoulder in my study is a note on the Washington Post in September 2016, where I predicted his win. And the note says, Professor, congrats, good call. And in big Sharpie letters, it's signed Donald J. Trump. Yeah, He recognized my prediction, but he didn't understand the nature of my system. My mm. keys to the White House system that predicted his win is mm. premised on the insight that it's governing, not campaigning, that counts. The yeah. keys to the White House gauge the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. They don't look at polls. They don't follow punditry. They don't look at who's up, who's down on a day-to-day -day basis. They look at the big picture. So you got 13 Trump. keys that, that, that had to be either false or true. That's in right. Order to and understand. true favors the party holding the White House. False is against him. These are big picture things. If six or more go against the party holding the White House, they're predicted losers. Any six. It's a totally nonlinear, unweighted 
system. So in late 2019, Trump was looking pretty good. I hadn't made a final prediction because there was a lot to go, but he was down only four keys. He had a two key cushion. And then of course, America was hit with crises, the pandemic, the cries for social and racial justice. And that's where Trump made his big mistake. He did not understand that the way to get reelection was to deal with these problems substantively. You are the incumbent now. You're going to be judging your record. Instead, he reverted to his 2016 playbook when he was the challenger, thinking he could talk his way out of these problems. That didn't work for the nation. It didn't work for his reelection. The result was he lost three more big picture keys. The short-term economy key, because America's in a recession in the election year. The long-term economic key, because the relentlessly negative growth this year brought down the average so low. And the social unrest key, because of what is raging across the land. So Trump goes from four keys down and a prospective win to seven keys down, one more than is necessary to predict his defeat. Never in the history of the United States has any incumbent party, party holding the White House, experienced such a sudden and dramatic reversal of fortune in just a matter of a few months. Never happened before. Mm. So it's the short-term economy key, the long-term economy key, and the, the civil unrest key. Those are the three new ones that turned the against new ones him that, just this how long, year. How long did that take for him to, to, to have them down? Uh, seven months. Okay. That's all. Six, okay. seven months, maybe even earlier, because I was waiting for the economic numbers to come out. But yeah. the actuality, of course, occurred earlier. But I made my prediction right after the second quarter economic numbers were released at the end of July. But probably and, the keys had, in actuality, turned early. We're talking about a very few months. Never, ever has that happened before. And the long-term eco economy key, how long is the long-term? I mean, could people yeah. perhaps see before them that, oh, maybe it will turn sometime in the fall or so, and then they yeah. wouldn't think it was a long-term problem? It's an excellent question. The long-term economic key is based on real per capita GDP, over the full term, obviously you're not gonna get the last quarter because it's after the election, as compared to the previous two terms. And that was looking really good, but growth has been so sharply negative that it's pulled down below the average of the past two terms, the two Obama terms. It is not impossible that growth in the third quarter could be so incredible, the biggest in history that it could affect that, but that is, incredibly unlikely. We are going to get negative growth in the first three quarters of these, this year, which will pull down the average below the Obama averages. And out of these 13 keys, how many are focusing on the, the personalities of the, the, the candidates, the yeah. incumbent and, and his uh, opponent? Only two. Only two. And they're very high threshold keys. They ask whether the incumbent party candidate is that once in a generation inspirational candidate like Ronald Reagan in the 80s or Barack Obama in 2008, a candidate with broad, charismatic, inspirational appeal. And, they, and then they ask because the questions are all phrased, so a false goes against 
the party in power, it sure favors it, that the challenging party candidate is not charismatic. Mm -hmm. And I split those two keys. I do not give Trump the incumbent charisma key. Now, we all know Trump is a great showman, but by the definition of my keys, the appeal has to be broad. And we know he appeals only to a narrow slice of the electorate. His strong approval ratings are between 25 and 30 percent. 60 percent plus of the American people don't like him personally and don't think he's honest and trustworthy. But on the other hand, I don't count the challenger charisma key against him. Because Biden is a decent, epithetic guy, but he's no John F. Kennedy. Mm, that's true. But the, the poll numbers were against uh, Donald Trump in 2016 as well. And then still he, he, he won, you know, although Hillary Clinton won the, the popular vote. <laughs> he won the electoral uh, college. Very so, narrowly. Uh, very narrowly. Yeah. So but 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 the poll numbers, you don't very, give much. Uh, you don't give them very much weight, do you? The poll numbers at all. I don't use horse race poll numbers at all in my system. The polls are irrelevant. Sometimes, like now, my prediction happens to coincide with the polls. Sometimes it doesn't, like 2016. The biggest example of where my prediction went utterly contrary to the polls came in 1988, when George H.W. Bush, the candidate of the incumbent Republicans, was trailing his opponent, the governor of Massachusetts, the Democrat Michael Dukakis by 17 points. And I wrote in the May 1988 Washingtonian that not only was Trump going to win based on the keys, he was a shoo-in to win, even though he's down almost 20 points in the polls. And you can imagine I took a lot of heat for that, just as yeah. I took tremendous heat for predicting Donald Trump in 2016. You mm -hmm. can imagine that did not make me very popular in 90% Democratic Washington, D.C. But you have that coolness under pressure, so no problem for you. Yes, I've been doing this for 40 years. I have to tell you, Anders, I still get butterflies in my stomach, though, just as I did really? when I went on that stage at Tic Tac Doe or when I'm being cross-examined in a federal courtroom. But I still stay cool, as cool as I can anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And those, these 13 keys, I, I, I guess it's difficult to just read them out loud, all 13. I can, uh, really podcast quickly. like this, but you can do that? Yeah. Okay, uh, sure. Key one Good. is the party mandate based on midterm elections. Then we have the incumbent challenge key. Is there a big fight for the incumbent party nomination? Uh, the incumbency key is the incumbent party candidate, the sitting president, the third party key, is there a major third party campaign? The short term economic key is the economy in recession, the long term economic key, comparing average growth with the previous two terms, uh, policy change, uh, major change from the previous administration, uh, social unrest, which we've talked about. My favorite key, the scandal key, which Donald Trump obviously loses whether there's a major foreign policy success or a big foreign policy failure. And then the two charisma candidate keys that I've described to you already. Perfect. And you've had, and they, those keys have been the same for 40 years uh, since you started. The keys this. have been the same for 40 years, but one thing has changed. I don't know if you're familiar with the American presidential election of 2000. 
That's when Al Gore won the popular vote and George W. Bush won Florida by 537 votes out of 6 million. And yeah, as a result- we had, to, we had to wait for two months until to, to have yeah, a result. Yeah, till, till mid-December, right. And that wasn't quite two months, but it was, it was no. about six weeks. Uh, I predicted Gore would win the popular vote. He didn't win the electoral college, but the election was stolen in Florida. Bush wins by 537 votes. As I proved in my 2001 report that I gave to the distinguished United States Commission on Civil Rights, tens of thousands of African-American votes, big surprise, were suppressed. Gore should have won that going away. But that did alert me to an issue, which is the divergence between the popular vote and the electoral college vote. That wasn't an issue in 2004, 2008, and 2012, because those were very, very clear predictions. It became a big issue in 2016, because that was a knife edge, six key prediction. Remember, it takes six keys to count out the incumbent. Yeah. And there were some very close calls, like on the third party. Uh, so it was, it was the, maybe the hardest call I ever made. And yeah. so I said, I'm not going to even bother this time with the popular vote. There's no point. The Democrats are going to win the popular vote because they get five to six million extra popular votes in two states. And you know what they are, New York and California. And they count for zero in the Electoral College. Even in 2000, it was only 1.7 million. So all I did in 2016 in my September 2016 Washington Post interview was predict the winner, not bother with the popular vote. Same thing as you heard right now, I'm predicting uh, Joe Biden is going to win. Although if he wins the Electoral College, a Democrat will also win the Will also win vote. the popular vote, yeah, because it's yeah, of course. virtually impossible for a Democrat to win the other way around, just the Electoral College. No, not, not possible. It's only because possible of, like you said, New York and California. Yeah, there's no comparable Republican state, not even close. But let me say, this is a much bigger problem for our democracy than it is for prediction systems. You know, we've reached the point where the American people don't, don't uh, elect the president. A Democrat could win like Hillary Clinton by almost 3 million popular votes and still lose in the Electoral College. You know, America is the world's oldest continuing democracy since uh, the 18th century. And that's a great thing on the one hand, we're also stuck with obsolete 18th century institutions, the worst of which is the Electoral College, which no longer reflects the country. It wasn't a big deal back then because the difference between the big states and the small states was not that much. Now, the difference between New York and California and Montana, Wyoming is immense. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about those things uh, later, but let's do it now. I mean, what, what do you think is, uh, what would, would you recommend be done to improve the, uh, the political system in, in, in America? And is it possible to do anything? It's, it's really inert, isn't it? <sighs> well, it's a huge question. Uh, what you know, I'm confident done? in my prediction, but there are a couple of things that keep me awake at night. One I've already talked about for 2000, but it's much worse now, voter suppression. Donald Trump and his guy at the post office are doing everything possible to make it difficult to vote by mail, which is an absolutely essential alternative in the middle of a pandemic. But by the way, 
while Donald Trump is railing against mail-in voting, you know, you can't just send these ballots to people. Guess what he did in North Carolina? He sent absentee ballot applications to his <laughs> lists with a big picture of Donald Trump on it and saying, let's, you know, make America great again. Utterly contradicting what he did. But I'm very worried about voter suppression. You know, the Republicans depend on old white guys like me. Well, you can't manufacture more old white guys. You can't make us live to be 150, but you can try to suppress the rising vote for the Democrats of minorities and young people. The, and so we need fundamental electoral reform, things like same day registration, automatic registration, uh, no photo voter IDs, no draconian purges that are biased to make it easier to vote. You know, we're the world's oldest continuing democracy. We're the richest nation on the world. And we're near the bottom of other peer nations in voter turnout. It's a disgrace. Mm -hmm. Second thing that keeps 50 me- 50% or so, a little over 50, 55 it's about, it, Well, it varies a lot whether it's a midterm or a presidential. It's about 60% in a presidential. Uh, that's of eligible voters, not of the whole population. That yeah. doesn't count people who are not of age. It doesn't count uh, non-citizens. And it's well below 50%, sometimes even below 40% in midterm elections. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. Yeah. Second thing that keeps me awake at night is Russian intervention. They're back. And they probably learned a lot over four years. They may even be trying to get into our voter registration rolls, which would be tragic. But one thing we know for sure, he's basically said it, once again, Donald Trump will welcome and exploit any Russian interference in our democracy that he thinks will help him. And he's blocked every initiative to try to prevent the Russians. You know, we need a lot more money for the states. Another 18th century institution we're stuck with is every state runs its own independent election. And then within the state, essentially every county, you know, over 3,000 counties and independent yeah. cities run their own elections. So we need a national strategy. Gerryman gerrymandering. And they, oh, yeah, that's another issue. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The gerrymandering of congressional and state legislative mm. districts. We need Florida, of all places, has dealt with that by passing an anti-gerrymandering state constitutional amendment. We need that everywhere. But we need very strong measures to shore up our electoral technology and a very strong national strategy to keep foreign intruders out of our elections. Those are Talking some of about, the things yeah. that keep me awake at night and that need to be changed. Yeah. Fascinating, interesting. Uh, talking about the, the Russian connection here, you did also predict uh, that Donald Trump was going to be impeached, with, which he was, uh, as we all know. And so that was, uh, you predicted that correctly as well. <laughs> At the same but, time, I predicted his election. Even before he was elected, I said, he's going to win and he's going to be that's, impeached. Yeah, that's true. At the same time, he did that. Yeah, but... I read that you even read a book about it and I, I, I read it and uh, you had some ideas as to on what grounds he was going to be impeached. And you, you didn't exactly mention the, the ground that, that was used uh, in reality now when he was impeached, but you, 
you mentioned one of the things that you talked about was, was this uh, Russian collusion. Yes. The uh, campaign to, um, before the election of 2016. But what, I guess what he was impeached for was something similar, something to the, to the same Very effect. similar. You know, all yeah. roads with Trump lead to Putin. And, mm. you know, he was shaking down the Ukrainian new president. Everybody recognizes to try to uh, undermine his opponent, Joe Biden, by investigating Biden and his son, Hunter. But what everyone forgets, that wasn't the first thing he asked President Zelensky to do. You know what the first thing he asked him to do was? I can't, I can't Look remember. into this Russian propaganda line, that it was ah. really the Ukraine and the Democrats that interfered in the election, not Vladimir Putin and the Russians on behalf of Donald Trump. That was the first thing he asked to promote this Russian propaganda line that serves both Putin and Donald Trump. So all think, roads lead yeah. to Putin. Okay. How do you think it went then, the impeachment? I mean, you said that the Democrats, it was important that the Democrats uh, go all the way, so to speak. Uh, I think it was very important because one of my keys is the scandal key. And there are plenty of scandals. But when you're only the third president in history to be impeached by the full house, that pretty well nails down the scandal mm -hmm. key. And, you know, you had his enablers in the Senate. You know, you could have had him on the phone with Vladimir Putin saying, you know, Vlad, I want you to change all of our... Uh, voting machines, so I win. And his enablers in the Senate still wouldn't impeach him. And the greatest irony was Susan Collins, the supposed moderate uh, Republican who said, I think Donald Trump has learned his lessons and now will be more moderate. Just the opposite. Donald <laughs> Trump interpreted his acquittal as license to bring government under heel, you know, firing people who testified against him firing five inspectors general, the guys who are independent and women, to monitor his administration, not to mention manipulating justice to help his cronies, Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. Yeah, well, Donald Trump is obviously a divisive figure and some say he's a, he's a dis disruptor, which one might uh, agree with, whether you like him or not. But and you are a Democrat, That's uh, you're open with that. And it's a bit obvious when you talk about these things. But well, on the other hand, when you do your predictions, you, you have to stay clear of that, I guess. That's very That's important. very important. To, yeah. The hardest thing in being a successful forecaster is not knowing history, although you got no history. It's not knowing math, although you got no math. It's not knowing politics, although you got no politics. It's putting aside your own personal preferences. And that's where my training as an historian comes in, because that's what we're taught to do in writing history, is try to write history as impartially as possible. If I were to simply predict the candidate I wanted to win, I'd be wrong half the time. I'd be totally useless. But going into 2020, I've predicted four Republicans, and five Democrats. That is about as impartial as you can get. And as you can imagine, I did not win any new friends predicting Donald Trump in 2016. And I probably <laughs> lost a bunch of old friends. Gives you credi credibility, I, I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, but 
Talking about Trump, uh, whether you like him or not, he is a disruptor, uh, you, you might say. And would you, would, you, would you say that he, in some ways, perhaps has uh, disclosed some of the flaws of the political system by being the way he is? That's very insightful. Uh, he has exposed lots of loopholes in our system. For example, he showed how weak congressional oversight of the president really is. Basically, he's stonewalled Congress time and again with absolute impunity. He really hasn't suffered anything at all by trampling upon uh, the institution of Congress. It also shows uh, how easy it is for the president to abuse his executive powers. Basically, without getting anything from Congress, Donald Trump has completely rewritten our immigration laws and our environmental laws. To some extent, he has been checked by the courts. But as we know, the court process grinds so incredibly slowly. These uh, cases grind out for many, many years. He has also shown you know, how easy it is to uh, deny information to the American people. You know, Donald Trump promised us that once his so-called audit was finished, he'd release his taxes. Well, he's got decades worth of taxes with no audits. Come on. You know, maybe his most recent taxes are under audit. Still hasn't released his taxes. Hasn't been transparent about much of anything in government. And again, it's been very, very difficult to undo this. Again, you go through the courts, but what all this has revealed is how slow the court process it is and how easy it is for a president really to uh, delay things to the point where they're not meaningful. We're not going to get his taxes, which he promised us, you know, four years ago before this coming election. Mm. So those are some of the loopholes that Trump has exposed that need to be shorn up. And he was the one that was supposed to drain the swamp. Not only hasn't he drained the swamp, he is, you know, overfilled the swamp. So, you know, where it is now seeping into every home. Some people even are afraid that he won't accept the election results should Biden win, as you predict, uh, and just stay in the White House. Uh, do you think that's a possibility? Well, the first half, I think, absolutely. He'll never accept the results of the election. He'll go to his grave saying, I really won. The election was rigged. Look, he said he really won the popular vote, that he lost by almost 3 million in 2016 because yeah. he said three to five million illegal voters materialized out of nowhere on election day, all voted for Hillary Clinton, and then miraculously disappeared again. You know, it's so absurd. It's laughable, but this is what he thinks. And he will go to his grave, no matter what happens this time, thinking he won. That doesn't mean, though, he's going to barricade himself in the White House and, you know, fight it out. He's a coward. You know, he can't even fire people eye to eye. He's got to get someone else to fire them. He's got to fire them via tweets. He does not personally have the fortitude to actually physically fight a battle to stay in the White House. Remember, too, this guy is a multiple draft dodger never served, although he loves to drape himself in the military, right, all the time, 
but he doesn't have the courage to confront Vladimir Putin when there's reasonably credible intelligence that he's paying Afghan militants to kill American soldiers. Can you imagine any other president just letting that go and not confronting the Russian president? That's, that's incredible, astounding. Many people like him, though, as you know. I mean, not a majority, perhaps, but but quite a few Americans still still claim that they they like what he says and what he does. He says that he's a truth teller, uh, and what this has led to is, of course, polarization has has increased, um, partisanship has increased, as far as as far as one can tell. Uh, are you are you afraid? Are you are you afraid that this? Uh, are you scared by that? That fact, uh, or, or is what we are seeing perhaps uh, merely old rifts and trends becoming visible? Is is even democracy maybe molting, uh, turning into something different than it used to be? What are your I think we are seeing uh, the expansion of, of old trends in America. Look, America was divided into slave and free in the 1850s. It led to the most turbulent politics and obviously to a civil war. And it took a century really to heal the wounds of the civil war. So I think we will get through this period. I think democracy will survive, but just like the civil war led to these incredibly important constitutional amendments, the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment establishing equal protection under law and due process, the 15th Amendment saying you can't deny someone the right to vote based on color. We're going to need, I think, some comparable kinds of reforms. I've sketched some of them out, getting rid of the Electoral College, making voting easier. I think reforming the two Senate rule, which is also obsolete. And whether we have a thriving democracy will, to a great extent, depend upon whether we get through this. And like the post-Civil War period, we enter into a new era of fundamental reform. Democracy will not thrive as it is now in the United States. Do you think those changes would be easier to make uh, if there is a democratic president in the, next, in the White House during the next term? Or, or does it matter? Oh, I think it does matter. And I think it also matters what's going to happen in the Senate. You know, for a long time, the conventional wisdom was Republicans have, you know, 53 seats in the Senate. It's unlikely the Democrats will get three or four to take over. Now, that's at least a 50-50% proposition. Now, the big issue is what happens to the Republican Party after Trump? Trump basically has trashed everything the Republican Party ever stood for. Personal morality, a laugh. Personal responsibility, ridiculous. Fiscal responsibility, utterly destroyed. States' rights, gone. Respect for traditional institutions, down the drain. These, this is, was, you know, not that long ago, the basis of the Republican Party and Trump has destroyed it all. So what is the future of the Republican Party? The other big issue confronting the Republican Party is demography, as I said. You know, us old white guys, we are the most shrinking part of the electorate. America's on the verge of becoming a majority minority society. You know, what is the future of a Republican Party that depends upon older white people who are rapidly dying out? Yeah, I that's... I lived for a long time, by the way. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to see, it, to see it happen. 
to see these changes coming. Maybe there's a new party coming up uh, down the road. Very difficult to form a, a new party in America. We haven't had one since uh, the 1850s. It's been a long time. Mm. Maybe something different. Well, those who are alive will see what happens. Very fascinating uh, question that you raised there, what will happen to the Republican Party after Trump. Uh, so we'll, we'll just follow that and see with fascination. Thank you so much for joining the show, Alan Lichtman, and uh, good luck with your coming predictions. My great pleasure. As I said, I slept butterflies in my stomach. It's not an easy thing putting yourself out like this on a limb every four years for 40 years. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.